Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after nearly three years of arbitrary dissension, the emotional return of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor to home soil was warmly embraced by Canadians this weekend. But will the return thaw Canada-China relations? Two highly respected leaders in Hamilton's Public Works Department are gone. What happened? And we recap the Ryder Cup as the United States completed its most dominant win since Europe was invited back in 1975. It's all part of the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There was great expectation, I guess, uh, late last week when we found out that it appeared as if the uh, charges uh, against uh, the Huawei executive that was being held uh, in Canada, of course, and ex- possibly extradited, uh, was coming to an end. And uh, with the uh, the agreement that was eventually reached, the concern was, well, what about the two Michaels? And uh, the speculation we were told then is, well, they're not really related, but it could lead to the release of the two Michaels in Chinese prisons. Well, it was just hours after that that uh, we found out the two Michaels were going to be set free. Global's Mercedes Stevenson filed the report. After more than 1,000 grueling days in Chinese custody, Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor are on their way home and free. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the news at a surprise late evening press conference on Parliament Hill. Twelve minutes ago, the aircraft carrying Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor left Chinese airspace and they're on their way home. Trudeau said Canadian ambassador to China, Dominic Barton, was also on the plane. The government is not disclosing any other details at the moment, citing an active operation. These two men have been through an unbelievably difficult situation, but it is inspiring and it is good news for all of us that they are on their way home to their families. Let's talk about the implications of this, and there's been a lot of speculation, and uh, as I say, a lot of folks have weighed in on this over the weekend during the the weekend news shows uh, about how this happened and uh, what's going to happen going forward. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Elliot Tepper. Elliot, of course, is an emeritus professor of political science with Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today and, and to talk about some good news for a change. Yes, thank you, Bill. We've sometimes um, lamented on air that the Many time, times. The only time we get to talk is when something bad has happened. And this, of course, is nothing but really good news. Well, and I know that the last time you were joining us, we talked about this, and, you know, that we reminded our, our viewers, our listeners, rather, uh, that it had been almost, well, a little over three years now. And, uh, you know, boy, something's got to be done. Were you surprised, first of all, that it, that it seemed to come so quickly? I mean, we knew that negotiations were going on. Uh, we knew that the Canadian ambassador and diplomats were visiting Washington, uh, and the talks were going on. But it seemed to all happen in the space of about 48 hours. I know it didn't, it, there was a lot of setup to this, too, but it, it, it seemed to go at lightning speed once the, the ball got rolling here. Yes, once everybody agrees to say yes, things can happen. Uh, we, we thought last April, uh, when all of this was in the air, something might happen. Remember, at least once or twice before, there's been a lot of talk but uh, that somehow this deferred prosecution agreement might be in the works. And our ambassador to China, you and I talked about it then, spent three weeks in Washington, <laughs> which is most unusual. We already, you know, have an ambassador there. But it didn't work, and, and we, we commented on there at that time. Something was in the work that didn't happen. And there were rumors uh, not too long ago, it's back on. And then suddenly, yes, 
all of this came to fruition. Well, let me ask you, I want, to, I want to go back to that conversation that you and I had. It was about a week ago, and you reminded us once again that, you know, we seem to be close to the finish line before, but we we were told that, that Mung's lawyer said, no, no deal. We're not going to go for any of this, uh, this stuff. There's no plea bargain, nothing going to happen. What was different this time? Apparently, the word came down from Beijing. We, we aren't, let me back up a bit and say, we really don't have the inside scoop on what happened there. Uh, there's, I can speculate. A lot of people are speculating. We have some hints from our ambassador who's made some comments worth talking about. But uh, a deal was reached. I mean, the, what happened apparently was uh, Beijing decided it was time now to get this behind us. It could well be the Biden administration had the same goal. Uh, Canada has done its part by keeping this issue really uh, alive and boiling and in the front front row and we put together an international coalition of 65 countries signing on to a treaty against arbitrary detention. So we've done our part to keep it uh, really to, in the, to the global. We played our main strength as a middle power, which is multilateralism. We could mobilize opinion, and we are a close partner to the U.S., and, of course, they are the key player here. So we kept it front and center, put on as much pressure as we could unilaterally, uh, by working multilaterally, uh, not just bilaterally with China. But China apparently has made the decision, perhaps the U.S. has made the decision, that this is an irritant that uh, needs to be removed. We should uh, keep in mind, of, I guess, a bunch of things. One of them is the Chinese side portrays this as a great victory, um, and that's very helpful. But, of course, we can go ahead and say it's a victory for us as well, so it's win-win-win in that sense. But China sees this, and we don't get enough of it on air, I think. China sees this as part of a seamless message going forth. They are involved in national rejuvenation. They are now strong. No more hide your strength and bide your time. Wolf warrior diplomacy. But that wolf warrior diplomacy under Xi Jinping has started to face some, some pushback. So the pushback may be affecting them. Remember, they've got the um, Olympics coming. They may want this out of the way. The uh, assertion, though, uh, I don't know if you watched the program of the weekend, uh, Canada's ambassador to the U.S., uh, uh, one, uh, yes. Kristen Hillman, basically suggested that this was initiated by the Chinese, that the U.S. Yes. agreement with the Chinese uh, really didn't include this at all. Now, I, 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 I'm not going to doubt her word on this, but I'm one, it had to be part of the conversation. It might not have been the top priority, but I can't believe that it didn't get mentioned and, and at least kind of spark the, the desire to have this trade-off. Well, over the three years that this has been going on, and you and I have been talking, talking about it, I've suggested there were three, three ways out. One is she would win her case in court, in the Canadian court. Uh, two, that the U.S. would withdraw its request. And three, there would be a hostage exchange, a prisoner exchange. And all three happened unexpectedly. Uh, the doubt about which way the courts might rule in Canada may have played a, a key role in all of this. Um, nobody apparently on either side... That is, the U.S. and uh, China and either didn't, didn't want to wait to be sure which way it was going to go. China didn't want to carry it on. Second of all, the U.S. was quite willing to withdraw its extradition request, which is how this technically and formally happened. They have now withdrawn the request. But it's because they say they've, uh, the court case can go ahead against Huawei, not against her, and the hostage exchange. Uh, which distinguished Canadians pressed for some months ago. And I always said, boy, I want them on my side. 
<laughs> I've gotten in trouble. Um, all of this happened. And, uh, I didn't. I thought it was one, two, or three. It turns out it's one, two, and three. And I know the Chinese government is insisting that it was not a swap, that one had nothing to do with the other. But, I mean, Elliot, they almost passed each other in the, in the air. Uh, you know, the flights almost left at almost identical oh, yes. time. Uh, this this was almost orchestrated. It seemed that way anyway. Oh, it, oh it's not almost orchestrated. This was a, a classic hostage exchange. The two flights took off at the same time and passed each other in the air, basically. So this, this, was, this was a hostage swap. Uh, I, I'd like um, to go back to the idea about how the Chinese see this. The Chinese see this as part of their great strength. Why was she arrested in the first place? Ah, because the U.S. wanted to stop China's rise, and they were pressuring, pressuring, pressing on Canada to, you know, arrest their, their star, their, their princess. Uh, so it, it was, the release then was also as a result of their Chinese strength. And that, and I, I'd like, it's worth reading. I don't think it's hit our press very much. Here's what the Chinese are saying officially about what happened. Quote, and I'm quoting now from the People's mm-hmm. Daily um, the outlet, the Global Times. After the confirmation from related departments and diagnosis of professional medical institutes and under the guarantee of the Canadian ambassador to China, all of those are important, Beijing's number two court and the People's High Court decided to release them on bail in accordance with law. And here's something that uh, has been passed over, I think, in our press. The two confessed to their crimes and wrote confession and repentance letters in their own handwriting. So this is what the domestic audience, the giant domestic audience, is being told inside China. Uh, Yeah, but we've seen these before. I mean, you know, those that were captured by the North Vietnamese back in that conflict and that war uh, did similar things. I mean, you don't know the pressure that they were in situations like that or promises that were made. So, But in other words, they're trying to sell this to their people. And and I know that there'll be a a number of people that are going to just eat this stuff up and say, yeah, our our government is one again. So they're they're trying to put the spin on this. Uh, We we know what the realities are in a situation like this. I I even saw, even the the response from the, the two political leaders here, Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh, uh, congratulated the diplomats uh, from the Canadian yeah. side for doing this. No political, uh, you know, kudos at all uh, to the Prime Minister for sticking to this. But where, you know what's interesting about this, though, and you and I have talked about the political landscape in this country, where he got some of the biggest plaudits from the, the media here was from the conservative media. The people who have been some of the harshest critics of Trudeau for the last six years that he's been Prime Minister uh, said, you know what, he got this right. He do- we don't like his China policy, but he stood fast and he waited and he got and he did the right thing. And, and almost to a person, uh, the small-c conservative media said, this is it, we, we like this. Uh, the, the political leaders weren't willing to do that, but his harshest critics were able to admit that they handled this properly when it came to the prisoner exchange. It, it took way too long, but at least it got done properly. Yes, the... Uh the domestic, you know, I've taught international relations a long time, so we talk about uh, the domestic interest in foreign policy because our tendency is to look at foreign policy state to state, but in every state it's the domestic audience and the domestic messaging that counts. And the, the imperatives for how you conduct yourself abroad is often related to domestic, is always related to domestic rather than uh, foreign or external uh, imperatives. So we do have a situation where, I, how can I put this? Let me just stand back as, uh, where we, you and I opened up today. I think everybody on all sides is relieved 
And the government of the yeah. day, which happens to be one that the conservatives, small and big C conservatives don't like, are also on board as saying, Canada has done something right here. We stuck to our principles. We did the right thing to keep this uh, pressure on China. The repu- You and I talked about this. The reputational cost to China has been very high, and Canada has played a leading role. Mind you, Chinese behavior has played an even bigger role. But pointing out the nature of this regime, again, standing back a bit, over the last three years, what, these thousand days and plus, and and a couple years before that, the world has come into uh, having a different focus on what China is. China says it wants to be a, a leader of the world, and the rest of the world is saying, oh, yes, now we see how you behave, including hostage diplomacy. So we're not sure we want you to lead. And you and I have talked again about this. I've mm-hmm. put the phrase into the air. They're really not ready for prime time if this is how they behave. And perhaps they're now, through what we are talking about today, are saying, yes, we are ready for prime time. Well, they want us to believe that they're ready for prime time, but I mean, you know, the, the behavior tells another story. But you've you've talked about some of the other extraneous factors in this. You mentioned the the, the Olympics coming up. Uh, they want the world to love them. They want the world to show up first of all, but they yes, want the indeed. world to love them again. And and I, I'm sure uh, that you know, something that will never make the, the the Chinese press is I'm sure there was some talk in Beijing of like, how do we get rid of this problem now? You know, it, we we didn't start it. We we did this in retaliation, and I'm sure they want to stand by their actions as as horrendous as they might have been. But they wanted this problem to go away. And, and as soon as the U.S. said, okay, fine, we're going to drop the charges, they said, all right, get these guys out of here because we don't need this heat right now. As fast as possible. Let, let, let them go. Yes, indeed. I think that's a, a correct analysis. The Chinese are also presenting this, by the way, as the Biden administration, because this is the extradition treaty was withdrawn, extradition request was withdrawn. The Biden administration is now going down the checklist that we gave them, says the Chinese. Mm-hmm. In, in Alaska, with the very first meeting, very frosty meeting, uh, the Chinese gave them a two-page list. Here's what you guys have to do to clean up your act, to get back on good terms with us. And then Wendy Sherman, the Under Secretary of State for uh, Asia, um, longer title, but she, she went in July, I think, and, and got that same list handed to her. And now the Chinese are saying, on that list was the release of Meng Wanzhou. So what we are seeing is the U.S. agreeing to our terms to get back on good relations. And there is speculation that as a result of changing circumstances, there might now be a, a, a bilateral um, meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden at the G20. And there's also speculation that uh, a trade mission might now be going to China. John Kerry's a mandate on climate might become much easier because you cannot deal with global climate change without the Chinese. Uh, so the, the Chinese are presenting this, and maybe it's a good thing, as saying the, the world is coming to us and we're now willing to deal with the world because there are areas, particularly on climate and COVID, where you absolutely have to have the Chinese on board. If this helps, I mean, it makes us feel great to have them home, but if it also removes an impediment cooperation where you need it, you know, cooperate where you can, challenge where you have to uh, compete all along. This is kind of the the mantra. So if this helps clear the path, at least in some areas, because China's saying we're happy, everybody's giving in. America's saying we've got what we want. Canada's saying, oh, well, we're happier. But boy, do we need a China policy now. 
and that's that's I think a subject we should be talking about as well. We well, I, I'm glad, you, boy, Ella. You know, we've been talking. You and I have had these discussions for so many years. We just seem to segue naturally into the. I wanted to talk about that. We're almost out of time. I've got a couple sure. of minutes left, and we're going to have many more conversations about this down the road. But in the short term, uh, does this does this thaw out those frost relations between Canada and China? And because Canada's got some important economic decisions, not just uh, diplomatic decisions, uh, the Huawei uh, decision. You know, and I know the Five Eyes don't want anything to do with this, and Canada's holding out haven't made a final decision on this. Uh, the investments by Chinese officials and Huawei into Canadian universities and the research and development and the concern about uh, you know, delicate information. Uh, does, is there a reevaluation of all of these things, or do we just kind of bide our time for the time being? I mean, this, this is a pivotal time right now. It is, and we do need an Indochina, I'm sorry, Indo-Pacific um, strategy. It's been on the, in the works apparently since April. This now will, you know, put a kick into the into this to get us Canada needs a formal strategy we should point out Canada's has maintained a rather healthy trade relationship it's gone up in certain areas uh, with China during this time period China has another company we talked about Huawei we quietly very quietly banned a national security interest China Mobile just a few weeks mm-hmm. ago so Canada has been acting on multiple tracks all along on this what we will now do with Huawei, probably we will have to join our Five Eyes colleagues, or we will, and, and with the release of the two Michaels, it opens it up, right? But that's only the start of a fundamental reevaluation, not only by us, but around the world, about an emerging China under Xi Jinping and its ambitions and its methods of how it plans to achieve global uh, prominence or dominance by 2050. Yeah, and we're going to get into trust or lack thereof as, as we have those discussions going forward. And uh, you're right, uh, this is going to be topics for G7 and G20 going forward and a number of other things. Uh, glad you had some time to talk to us about this. A lot of questions, a lot of people wondering what's going to be happening going forward. Like you say, the big takeaway here is that they're home and they're, they're safe. Uh, the, the implications of this, uh, well, to be determined, but there's a lot to talk about. Elliot, thank you so much for this today. Great having you back on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Jelly Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about sexual assault and the concerns that we've had for a number of years now, but I mean, it's really come to the fore because of the, the plethora of, of new incidents that we've heard, oftentimes involving alcohol. And you wonder, okay, what can we do? How can we be proactive in, in trying to deal with this as opposed to reactive to things that have already happened? Well, uh, the good news is the people at SmartServe have actually stepped up. They have been, of course, involved in uh, the responsible use of alcohol for many, many years. And uh, Richard Anderson, who is the executive director of Smart Service, is going to join us on the program right now to talk about, uh, I think, a very exciting and very needed uh, initiative on this. Richard, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. Morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about this because we've, we we know societally right, right now about the concern with sexual assault and uh, and Smart Service stepping up and there's a, there's a new module that you're introducing. Maybe you could tell our listeners about this. Certainly. Um, you know, we update our modules quite regularly and, and, and some background, lots of laws that have changed recently as well as legalization of cannabis. But most recently, certainly we get feedback from our servers and those that handle and serve alcohol that they interact with patrons regularly and see all kinds of things. And certainly sexual violence is one item that they never felt comfortable dealing with. So we wanted to do our part on a very kind of uh, intermediate or beginner level to teach them a little bit about sexual violence and harassment 
uh, we speak a little bit about uh, uh, date rape and assault and certainly about drug-facilitated assault, and, and that certainly is a topic that's come out of London in the last few weeks. Let's talk a little bit about how this is going to work then, and, and we want to begin the conversation by uh, applauding Smartser, by the way, for stepping in. I know a lot of people in the industry that uh, that uh, feel very comfortable with the fact that, that, that you guys are there and you're talking about responsibility, uh, and, and I know it filters down to the staff at a lot of these facilities, but uh, if they're properly educated and armed with that information, it makes their job that much easier, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. I think what we have been saying for years is that uh, we interact, uh, those that are smart serve trained, they see all kinds of things. They're already looking out for the patron to ensure that they don't drink and drive and they're not overserved. So now we're giving them some tools to understand sexual violence and harassment, and hopefully those tools are enough to help them, uh, you know, deal with it or get their manager to assist them and make them feel comfortable and hopefully, hopefully preventing this type of activity. Well, because the discussion oftentimes uh, tends to go to the point of, well, what do you really mean by, you know, what's flirting, what's sexual harassment, what's this, what's that? And I, I, I'm, I'm assuming, Richard, that you're not giving the definitive definitions for these things, but, but in other words, things that these people can look for and, and you know, to, to understand that, hey, maybe there's something going on here. Yeah, there's no question that barroom culture makes it difficult. But when you look at the fact that, you know, sexual harassment, violence, et cetera, is really anything that's unwanted, uh, mm-hmm. that's what we highlight. And we give them some things to look for and uh, some, you know, scenarios where they may not have thought that was uh, harassment, but it is. And I think at the end of the day, if they understand it better, they can interject or they can, as, as we say, put a plan together to ensure that uh, there's a safe uh, resolution. Uh, this is only introduced a couple of days ago, late last week, of course, uh, but we, we know that many of these establishments, Richard, have been uh, strong supporters of what Smart Service is doing, and the training is so very important, as I mentioned just a minute ago. Uh, any reaction yet from, from, uh, from the people in the industry about, about this, uh, this newest module and the implications? So one thing I'll clarify is that we, we did a kind of a quiet launch of it at the end of spring. Uh, we've had 70,000 users that have already taken the program, I think it's still very early, and we're certainly open to feedback. Uh, there's always a balance of could we add more, and we're certainly opening uh, open to hear that. Uh, when we built it, you know, we re- we had researchers uh, do the proper investigation. Certainly, we worked with the Alcohol and Gaming Commission and the Attorney General and got the initial feedback as we launched it. But moving forward, we're looking forward to hearing from people on uh, whether it was helpful or whether we could include more to, to help clarify it. Well, that's an interesting point, too, because we do know that the Ontario Attorney General has been vocal about this and saying, look, at one of the keys here is, is increased education for staff so they can see signs and, 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 and understand what may be happening, as you mentioned, in, in the barroom environment, which is quite different uh, for, in many ways from uh, an office environment or other things. And, uh, but it doesn't excuse it. It doesn't mean the parameters have been lessened by any stretch of the imagination. It just means a different scenario. So you're really, uh, th- this program that you're, you have introduced now is really in tune uh, with what the Attorney General is looking for here it's it's a response to a request and and i think a need in the industry for something like this absolutely and i I keep reiterating that we're just one small part of it we know there's a lot of agencies that uh, and victim advocate groups that uh, understand the sexual violence space a lot more than we do but we certainly felt that we wanted our servers to uh, again have some tips and, and some education to understand so that they could you know potentially step in and and understand it better so one part of it, but it's definitely uh, more to do for sure. 
Richard, how did they access this? Is it, is it done through the work environment? Is it made available to them? SmartServe is an online program for um, anyone who wishes to take it. To date, we've trained 1.8 million people, which is a pretty crazy number. Uh, but in order for them to take that module, they would have to uh, either recertify or take the full program. But I can say certainly since the official launch, we've had a lot of feedback on how people could just access it on its own. So we're going to work on that and see if we can pull something together in the next few weeks. I'm getting the sense that this is a very malleable program. In other words, if you get feedback about maybe something that, that maybe is, is not included that should be or something else, that, that you can massage this program. Absolutely, and I think as I stated at the beginning, we make updates regularly. Uh, we're in six languages, uh, and it's, it takes a bit of work every time we do an update, but we acknowledge it needs to be the latest information, and we always strive to get that out as soon as possible. Well, it's gratifying to know because I know that there's a great deal of concern about that and in, in, in dealing with this in different environments, uh, and uh, and for SmartServe to step up, I guess I'm not surprised, first of all, because you guys have been very responsible in, in helping with the education process uh, with the, the, the people that work in this industry and, and the people on the front line. There's been a lot of talk these days about in, you know enforcement of, of regulations etc because of covid and and some of the restrictions that have gone on uh and it's it's not a new debate because this has been going on in, in you know in, in license establishments for quite some time uh and and for people to do that job properly and to feel comfortable in that job uh, the education aspect of this is so important and uh, kudos to you richard and everybody at smart for stepping up really appreciate it thanks bill appreciate your time and uh, best of luck to uh, everyone and let's keep an eye on sexual violence and do our part Exactly. Thanks so much. Uh, Richard Anderson, Executive Director at SmartServe, with their their new module for education. That, that works. It's a big part of this. And we know that the uh, the first phase of this, of course, about uh, you know serving uh, is, is really problematic because there were some people in the business that are a little apprehensive about you know saying, well, okay, enough is enough, or hey, maybe you should take a cab or something like this. And uh, to be armed with information is the best tool uh, to try to create some confidence on both sides for the, for the consumer and for the people in those who are working in those environments. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on at Hamilton City Hall. Well, speculate, I guess, what's going on at Hamilton City Hall. More to the point, uh, Hamilton's head of public works uh, and uh, the head of the water treatment uh, plant and uh, that system are no longer working for the city. That was a rather stark announcement that was made late last week uh, when questioned as to why there were no answers forthcoming. Uh, I want to bring John Best in the conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer covering local politics. Uh, John, first of all, thanks for the time today. Uh, were you surprised by this announcement? I was uh, completely surprised. Uh, you know, I, I know both of those gentlemen, and, uh, you know, from what I could see and, and based on, uh, you know, the kind of, reputation they had it came as a total surprise well you look at one of them of course dan mckinnon who was the head of public works uh, he's been with the city for 27 years uh i worked with dan when i was on council low this many years ago he's been a guest on our program here many many times I, I i don't think i'm exaggerating john if i say he's probably one of the most respected members of the senior staff there or was i, I would agree with you completely bill um uh, they uh, both he and and andrew grice who took over as uh, the head of the water when when Andrew, uh, when uh, Dan was promoted to head up all of uh, Public Works, uh, um, I've had it, uh, interactions with them from time to time. And um, you know, when you when you're when you're getting praised by uh, the you know the remedial action plan people who, uh, as you know, are are dedicated to cleaning up the harbor, and uh, these guys were were getting praised for their work. 
And, of course, the whole thing got, uh, actually, they were making tremendous progress. This whole $300 million they're spending on the sewage treatment plant uh, at, at um, Windermere, it's it's going to end up making uh, the water quality even better than it is now. But, of course, it all got overshadowed by the uh, the spill into Shadow Creek and uh, uh, really unfortunate in the sense that it, uh, it kind of, overshadowed uh, a lot of really good work that had been going on and is going on even now. Uh, and there's lawsuits and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on to do with that that we've covered on this program over the last little while. What, what John's referring to, of course, is uh, when it was learned that there was a, a leak of about 24 billion, yes, billion liters of wastewater in the Shadow Creek uh, from a stormwater thing that was left open for a number of years. Uh, so and I I want to get back to that in a couple of seconds, but when people like McKinnon and Grice leave, uh, and they're not announcing their retirement, although I think officially they say Dan McKinnon's retiring effective immediately, uh, you're either pushed or you're jumping in a situation like that. I mean, and I think we need to deserve an explanation as to why. Are these guys going to be the, 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 the they're, they're the ones that are going to take the hit for what happened here? Or the, the, that's this incident, the lawsuit, and the, the fact that, you know, this went on for so long. Uh, by the way, let's connect another dot, which I think you did on the Bay Observer. Uh, the lead uh, legal voice uh, that, that basically gave counsel advice to keep this thing quiet is no longer with the city. That happened some time ago. So is, is this cleaning out what they consider to be the people that may be responsible for this or, or the people that they want to take responsibility for this? Well, I, th- I think um, there's no question that counsel would love it if this problem would go away. And uh, um, I, I think it's pretty clear. It would be hard to point the finger at any particular member of staff over the actual spill. Um, it was a, a malfunction of a gate that was left open by about 5%. Uh, the uh, Whatever signalization they had on their control panel didn't seem to uh, reveal it. So, you know, that's, you know, stuff like that happens. Um, I think the, the issue with council is, um, and, I, and I do think there has been some pressure from council without, without question. I think that's, I think what it comes down to is there may be some impatience Staff act more decisively on the on the cleanup and um, and the remediation of this problem. Uh, they would like to see some something a, a little more bold and decisive. And the reality is, uh, every time it rains, uh, you know, uh, every time it rains, there's more raw sewage going into Shadow Creek. So that problem hasn't been solved. Um, you know, and and to solve the problem. Uh, you have to go way upstream. Uh, it, it has to do with fertilizer runoff. It has to do with the fact that they they made the channel of the creek uh, out of out of concrete instead of a natural uh, creek. There's there's so much that needs to be done. It would probably cost about 150 million dollars to to actually address the the problems that that will continue uh, with this. Uh, uh, the, the nature of that creek. There's there's stuff going in there every time. Like last week, we had these tremendous downpours of rain uh, that resulted in all kinds of contaminated uh, sewage uh, going into Shadow Creek. So it's not like it stopped. It's just uh, the, you know the gate is closed, but they have to open the gate when they get those kind of rainstorms.
And we understand those, and those, those are ongoing. And even the Ancaster Councilor took some heat the other day for talking about a possible solution to this that he was supportive of. He simply withdrawn that support uh, about letting some of that overflow go in there. So it's it's an ongoing problem. But I guess the question a lot of people have been asking over the last four days here, are, are these guys going to be the fall guys for this? Can they say, hey, we got rid of these guys? Because uh, some of this stuff predates uh, McKinnon's time as, as the head of that department. Uh, and thrown into the mix is the fact that they also got bad legal advice too, which means it wasn't just public work. Uh, this seems to be an administrative screw-up here that's caused this sort of thing. Uh, so if somebody needs to have their head on the chopping block, is it necessarily the public works manager, or is it, does it go higher up the chain? Well, I, I think, you know, again, uh, you know, you can you can make these symbolic gestures, but in my mind it's a terrible blunder. Uh, first of all, we, we know that both of these guys are, are totally capable of doing their jobs. And so to get rid of them, all it does is focus, now they're gone. So now it focuses all the attention back on council. And I saw something on social media today where uh, someone had dug out uh, the actual council meeting in 2018. They, they posted a clip of, of council voting to keep the uh, report of the leak secret. And apparently that happened in August of 2018, which, of course, was two months before the, the last election. Mm-hmm. And, and so they've got these councillors on tape saying, uh, you know, standing up and voting uh, to, to keep the report silent. And there, there's even a, a situation where the mayor uh, appears to be a little bit confused about what they're voting on. And there's and you can see the clerk kind of sort of giving him hand signals that don't don't say too much uh, out loud. So it's not going to work. I mean, I mean, from an optics standpoint, I think this is the worst possible thing council could have done uh, with with an election campaign now only about eleven months away. So uh, I, I don't know what's to be gained by getting rid of two uh, very well qualified uh, public servants. Uh, these guys will land on their feet for sure. And I guess the other issue is just the brain drain that we've had here we've lost chris i'm glad you i'm glad you brought that up because yeah this is something a concern because this is not the first senior manager uh that has decided to leave the city and and uh to their fat to their credit they've all been pretty classy about it just said no i have a better opportunity but you mentioned former city manager chris murray uh paul johnson uh who by the way was in line for the city manager's job uh when chris murray left and apparently council decided he wasn't good enough Uh, he's now the deputy city manager in the city of toronto uh these people haven't just left john they've gone on to bigger and better things uh and, well, and we we're lost, losing uh, we lost a really good transit director in dave dixon uh, because he uh dared to speak truth to power and uh How about lrt yeah, exactly so um we're you know and we're not replacing uh, I, I don't want to be unkind here but we are not replacing these strong managers with equally strong managers and uh, that's a problem uh in a city like this uh you, you need a, a bit of tension between council and staff occasionally. Um, if you if you get uh, senior staff members that are totally compliant with everything, uh, you know they're only looking at the political antenna. Um, you're you're going to get more of these kind of mistakes. 
Well, if the intention here is for city council to hire people that are just going to cave into them all the time, I mean, we got a problem in this community. Uh, I'm not suggesting there has to be animosity between staff and, and, and the elected officials, but there no. has to be, as you mentioned, there has to be some truth here. I mean, you hire these people as quote-unquote experts in their field to be able to give advice and do analysis on this, and then council votes based on that information. Uh, if they're simply going to start writing reports that are going to, uh, you know, smooth the way for council's uh mindset on this to go forward uh that that's that's a terrible abuse i think of the whole process and you have to wonder what's going on here uh, and the other element to this too if you're talking about culpability for instance with what they've come to know as sewage gate uh it was a city council that voted to keep this thing quiet not staff and and all of them and as you mentioned just before the last election and and you know there's an accountability factor there that we i'm not going to forget and i hope you aren't i know you won't and excuse me that the public can't forget either well it was interesting the motion to keep it secret was moved by aiden johnson who uh, who was you know you would have identified with as as being uh with the environmentalist groups of of the city uh, you know, and it's interesting too. When you're talking about public works, everybody's an expert. Every, you know, uh, they they take legal advice slavishly, but um, including the bad advice they got on this. And and the, the trouble with legal advice, you know, the lawyers are great at assessing legal risk, but they downplay um, you know reputational risk. They don't they, they don't factor that in as having any value. And at the end of the day. The reputational risk is probably the most damaging uh, element of risk. Well, so. especially as far as council is concerned, is the political reputation risk. John, we got to jump in. Yep. Uh, lots more to come on this. I know you've done some great investigative work on this at the Bay Observer, and I know there's more to come on this. Uh, uh, this is the first of many conversations I'm sure we'll have about this. But thanks for jumping on today. Very good, Bill. Thanks. Okay, John Best, of course, publisher of the Bay Observer, and uh, we'll try to get more information about this as it goes on. As I mentioned, I spent uh, a fair bit of time over the weekend in front of the TV watching what I thought was going to be a very competitive Ryder Cup tournament between the United States and, and Team Europe when it comes to the championship, I guess almost of, of golf, the global championship. Well, the United States uh, completed, well, the most dominant Ryder Cup win, I guess, since Europe was invited back in 1975. Chuck Friedman has details. The United States were never really threatened on the final day of the Ryder Cup, although Xander Shoffley lost the first match of the day, but then the Americans rolled off the next three. Shoffley was one of six first-time Ryder Cup players on this young team. After Shoffley's loss, Patrick Cantley, Scotty Scheffler, and Bryson DeChambeau all rattled off wins just prior to Colin Morikawa's tie with Victor Hovland. That got the Americans to the required 14.5 points to win back the Ryder Cup that they had lost in 2018. Chuck Freeman, Sheboygan. I want to bring uh, Lucas Weiss into the conversation, freelance journalist who's covering the Ryder Cup. Uh, Lucas, appreciate the time today. Uh, I was disappointed, not that the Americans won necessarily, but I, this is usually a rather competitive tournament. Uh, the European guys were never in this, were they? No, they weren't. And great to be back on the show. I mean, obviously we want the Ryder Cup to come down to the final few matches like in years past, but the last few Ryder Cups haven't been that competitive. I mean, really stemming from 2016 back in Hazeltine in the United States. Team USA won that comfortably. In Paris three years ago, Europe won that comfortably. So it's showing that when you have that home advantage, they they, they find a way to win, whoever the home team is, whether it's the USA or Europe. But this felt like, to me, a real coronation for Team USA that's been years in the making. And I think that with, with a lot of the work that's gone into putting a task force together to get the best captains, get 
the ideal vice captains and to really pick the players that are going to do well. I think this week it all came together and it really showed in USA's dominance, the largest margin of victory for Team USA in Ryder Cup history. It's a good point to be making. This is the next generation. I mean, I know they mentioned at the beginning of the tournament, the TV coverage, well, no Mickelson this year, certainly no Tiger Woods. Uh, the, the, the standard bears who have been there for some time. Uh, but the stars that we've watched, especially this past year, the, the, the Patrick Cantlays, the, the Scotty Scheifler, as you mentioned, uh, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, these guys uh, expected were expected to dominate, and, and they didn't disappoint, did they? They did not, and and one common thread with those guys you just mentioned is youth. These guys are young, they're fresh, they want to win, and that's no disrespect to Tiger and Phil, but that era is gone now. I mean, Tiger and Phil are probably going to be great captains and vice captains for the Ryder Cup, but these young guys just have a freshness about them, and I think they all really get along with each other. I mean, Jordan Spieth, was saying this all throughout the week, that these guys know each other way back when they were teenagers playing golf as youth. So I think it makes this a lot more interesting for Team USA. And let's be honest, it's sort of a changing of the guard, too, for Europe, where a lot of their older guys, they're not going to be around like Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, Ian Poulter. And there's not a lot of young guys coming up to, to replace them. So for Team USA... With the young guys they have and how well they're doing and how high they are in the official golf rankings, they can dominate this tournament for many years to come. You mentioned Sergio Garcia, and you're right. He's he's part of that other generation. But he always shines in this tournament, Lucas. I don't know what it is about him, but he played very well through the weekend. Oh, he does. And I don't think it will be his last Ryder Cup. I mean, I do expect to see him playing in Rome in two years. But you see Sergio talk about the event. You see him when he was playing with John Rahm, how much this event means to him. And you even saw yesterday, I mean, name me a sporting event where you see grown men cry. I mean, like, like, this, like this is an event where these guys are millionaires. They don't have to play this. But you're seeing Rory McIlroy being a, emotional after his match win over Xander Shoffley, knowing that even though he won his match, he couldn't do what it took to win the Ryder Cup for Team Europe. You saw Shane Lowry and Lee Westwood show, show tears of emotion. I mean, this clearly means a lot to these golfers, and I think it's what's so great about the Ryder Cup is for all the year you're playing on your own. Golf is an individual game, but for this tournament, this one event that happens once every two years, these guys can come together and they try to win for their team. It's what makes the Ryder Cup, truly one of the great events in golf. There's one other guy that I wanted to highlight, too. I mean, you talked about this new generation, uh, these these cocky kids, and they're, they're cocky for a reason because they're good. Uh, the Cantleys and the Schefflers and, and uh, DeChambeau. Uh, Dustin Johnson, who hasn't had a fabulous year, but he's always he's been in the money. He's, he's doing all right. I mean, they're not going to foreclose on him or anything. But he performed so well. I think the message was, hey, you guys are pretty good, but you know what? I'm still here. He was the anchor of this team. And you did mention how he hasn't had the best of years. But we all know with Dustin Johnson, when he gets going, when he's on, he can fire at all cylinders. And to me, that was the underrated story of this week because Dustin Johnson has had some history at Whistling Straits. I mean, in 2010, he probably should have won the PGA Championship, which was staged there if it weren't for an unfortunate penalty on the 72nd hole. So then... 11 years later, he gets the opportunity to avenge that with going undefeated 5-0. and So 
For Dustin Johnson, he was the emotional leader of this team, and I really do believe that this could be a springboard for him to have a great year next year. Well, like I say, maybe disappointed from the standpoint of a competitive nature, but it was uh, it was fascinating to watch the performances and the reaction to this too, and uh, putting some of the humanity in golf. Uh, always a pleasure, Lucas. Thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Likewise, take care. Looking forward to coming back on with you soon. I hope so. Lucas Weiss, our freelance journalist who covered the Ryder Cup over this past weekend. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.